Thanks, Mark. We are, in light of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, going to take a little bit of a different course today than we usually do. If you're familiar with our church, you know that we take the exposition of the Scriptures very seriously, teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we're doing that right now in the book of Acts. But because next Sunday, Reformation Sunday, which is something that Protestant churches celebrate, frankly, every year, but this is the 500th year of the beginning of the Reformation officially, and so because of that, we feel like it'd be important for us to review a bit of the history and the doctrine of the Protestant Reformation to consider its legacy and the impact that that should have on us as believers now. We will refer much to Scripture and doctrine over the next couple of weeks, so do not worry about that. And perhaps most importantly, I don't want this to just feel like a seminary class. I want this to be an opportunity for us to recount what God has done in history for His glory and for our good. And the story of the Protestant Reformation declares that. It declares that God is wise and good, that Jesus keeps all of his promises, that not one of them will fail, and that still today we can trust these promises, and that we have work to do, both to uphold the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ for our families, and for coming generations. For the gospel of Jesus Christ is always under attack. As we learned recently in finishing the book of Ephesians, Paul says in chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against evil powers that we cannot even see. And Satan, as the leader of these evil powers, has done his dead-level best from the beginning of human history to eclipse God, to draw worship to himself, to replace God, and to do all that he can to lead us away from God, and after the work of Christ to subvert the gospel of Jesus into an effort of righteousness, into self-righteous, meritorious effort, and to lead us away from the pure gospel in which God justifies the ungodly, not because of what they do, but because of what His Son has done. And now, this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we find ourselves in a state in a condition as the evangelical church of God globally, where we must defend the gospel, we must understand it with great clarity, and we must hold to it with conviction and joy. And so it is my hope and my prayer that as we look together today and next week at the legacy of the Reformation that our hearts will be encouraged, that we will increase in our resolve to believe and to uphold the purity of the gospel. So today, we're going to take a look at Martin Luther. 
I am going to tell you some things that you perhaps already know. Some of you perhaps know very little about Martin Luther, and when I say his name, you get him confused with the civil rights leader of the 1960s. Of course, he was named after the legacy of the great reformer from the 16th century. So I am talking about Martin Luther, the German monk who came to understand the gospel of grace and who frankly not only transformed Germany in the 16th century, but his legacy sent ripples throughout the rest of Western history and nothing has ever been the same since. It probably would not be a stretch to say that Martin Luther is perhaps the most impactful Westerner that has ever lived. So we're going to take a look at his life today and consider the implications for ours. So we're going to look today at Martin Luther, which I believe will remind us that God is sovereignly gracious. Martin Luther's life is a testimony to the sovereign grace of God. We probably need to go back a little bit, and again, if this is bringing out cold sweats on you because it feels a little bit like uh, your freshman year in college when you took Western Civ, I just want you to calm down a little bit. There's no quiz at the end. Just sit back and relax a little bit and hopefully enjoy the story. After the apostles, you may wonder, what happened to the church? It's a great question. For the next several centuries, really for the next three or four, by and large, orthodoxy, commitment to doctrinal teaching was essentially upheld. The apostles trained other men and women to know the truth of the Bible, and churches were planted all over the known world in which the gospel was preached and upheld. Eventually, as all the letters of the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, were gathered together and recognized for what they were, Holy Scripture, they were joined together with the 39 books of the Old Testament, and you had what we would consider our Christian canon. This was not decided by a council, but merely recognized by Christian leaders as the divinely authorized, infallible Word of God. And by and large, in Christian churches, these 66 books and the doctrinal legacy of the apostles was upheld. You have councils that would get together and talk about doctrinal points to uphold things like the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity and full humanity of Jesus Christ, and many other things. By the time you get to about the 6th century, however, pure doctrine, and in particular, the doctrine of the gospel, that we sinners need to be justified if we are to escape the wrath of God. And justification may only be granted through faith in Jesus Christ. This particular doctrine... The doctrine which later Luther would say is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls was eclipsed, as I suggested earlier. The church fell into disrepair. Now, not ecclesiastically, 
not necessarily in its structure, not in its outward manifestation. In fact, by this time, this happened in the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Constantine declared that Christianity would be the imperial religion. One might think that this was a wonderful thing, and for the first century or two after this declaration, good happened. But in some ways, it was also the death knell of the pure gospel. For the first few centuries of the church, Christians were willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. When it became widely accepted, as we see even here in our age today, The followers of Christ began to take it for granted. The church became more hierarchical. That is to say, there were layers upon layers of church leadership. The Bible was not available to the average Christian. In fact, it was really only available in Latin. Frankly, a language which many people in those days under imperial rule didn't even speak. And anecdotally, in the Roman Catholic Church, Mass was said in Latin up until the 1960s, so about a millennia and a half. The central feature of the eventual Roman worship service, the Mass, was the Eucharist, what we would call communion. The preaching of the Word was eclipsed, as I have suggested a couple of times. After all, even if the word had been spoken, if the gospel had been explained, most people couldn't have understood it anyway. And there's no way that they could have examined what was being said from the pulpit because they didn't have Bibles in their hands. And so for around a thousand years, the gospel essentially was, to use my word, eclipsed. It became a common notion that to find acceptance with God, one had to keep all of the seven sacraments of Roman Catholicism. Power had consolidated in Rome around the 6th century or so because the bishop of Rome began to be the most prominent bishop in the church. You have the early ideas of a pope around this time. This makes sense because Rome was the center of the empire. I won't bore you with a lot more details, but this is sort of the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic just means universal, and the universal Christian church was centered around Rome. Over time, though these things would be actually written down later and agreed upon by a Roman Catholic council, the Pope began to be seen as infallible. That whenever he spoke from an official point of view, what he said was from God and could not be questioned. Those underneath him, his cardinals and archbishops and bishops and priests and so forth, when they spoke his words, it was as though God was speaking to his people. And thus began a sad and laborious ritual wherein the people under Roman imperial rule and the church and the empire in many ways became one. People 
began to live under the burden of trying to maintain favor with God by their own efforts. Things like original sin being washed away when you're an infant in infant baptism. Or later, making sure that you did not commit too many sins. And if you did, making sure you went to the local parish and confess each one of them in turn and trying as best you could not to commit the worst of sins, not just the small venial ones, but the mortal ones which could condemn you to hell. The doctrine of purgatory arose during this time, a doctrine which taught that even the most righteous could not be assured of entry into paradise, but rather would need to go to an intermediary place between heaven and hell after death, wherein one's sins could be burned off in a crucible-like experience of purification, which could last for untold millennia. Eventually, there arose doctrines that taught that one could pray for the dead, perhaps asking God to shorten their time in purgatory, And over time, there arose a practice called indulgences, wherein one could pay money and offer it to the Roman Catholic Church, and in doing so, perhaps the time in purgatory could be shortened for your loved ones who had passed on. It was into this context that Martin Luther was born. Luther was born in 1483 to a peasant family that eventually gained means. Luther's father was involved in copper mining and smelting and eventually had money and encouraged his son to take up law. In so doing, he wanted his son to be able to defend his businesses and also make a good living for himself. And so that's what Luther did. Luther pursued a, um, a degree in law and attained it. But in 1505, whenever Luther was about 22, he was taking a night trip on horseback and there was an awful lightning storm. And he feared for his life. And he cried out to St. Anne, which I believe was the patron saint of miners, made sense because of the family from which he came, that if he was spared death in this lightning storm, that he would become a monk. This seemed like a good deal to him in the moment because he was about to die. And he was spared. And true to his word, if Luther was anything, he was a man of conviction. He gave up the practice of law and went to the monastery where he would be trained to become a Roman Catholic priest. His family was not happy with this, but Luther could not be moved and went forward with this conviction. As you might be able to discern because of the day and age in which Martin Luther was born, Martin Luther had no idea that one could be justified, pardoned by sin, by merely trusting Christ. Luther grew up in a context where one had to work hard. One had to examine each little sin and do penance for these sins to maintain favor with God. 
Luther both feared God and by his own admission in many ways hated God. Luther saw the gospel as merely an extension of the law. Luther saw Moses and Jesus as essentially two figures who taught the same things, though in different eras. In Luther's eyes, Jesus came to teach that one had to obey God in every respect, and if one did not, the righteousness of God would be poured down upon the head of the unjust sinner, and that sinner would be condemned. It is in this state of mind that Luther entered into the monastery. By Luther's own admission, it was a horrible experience. Now, if you're a monk, life is not a uh, life full of rainbows and jelly beans. Life in the monastery is hard, period, for anybody. But Luther made it harder. Luther kept track of all of his sins as best he could. Sometimes he would sleep in the dead of winter in just his regular clothing with no blanket in his blocked cell. It was sort of like a prison cell in some ways. And almost die of the cold. In fact, he would be so cold that frost would form on his body. It's a wonder that he didn't die. He would beat himself, sometimes literally into submission, seeking to put down the flesh and instead treasure God. He would spend hours in confession with a more senior priest. To the point that that senior priest told Luther that he couldn't listen to him anymore. And that Luther should just go trust God. But Luther's conscience was unappeased. It's a good time for me to mention that though Luther in so many ways was the initial catalyst for the Reformation, he was not the first person who taught some of the things that he would later teach. They were men like John Wycliffe, perhaps you've heard his name in England, another man named Jan Hus in Bohemia, modern-day Czech Republic. These men taught similar doctrines that would later take hold in the Reformation, such as that people needed to have the Word of God in their language in their hands. Things like repentance cannot be bought or earned, but as a matter of the heart. Things like justification or being declared righteous by God is not something that you can earn, but something that is credited to us whenever we trust Jesus. These ideas had not totally been lost in the church of Christ over this thousand years of darkness. Jan Hus And the word hus, bohemia, meant goose. Hus was eventually burned at the stake for his understanding of these doctrines, these things that he taught well before Luther came about. And when Luther, or rather when Hus was being burned at the stake, history says that he said to the bishop, you may cook this goose, but there will come a swan who will not be silenced. In fact, he furthermore said that this would happen within the span of about a hundred years, and that is nearly exactly what happened. Huss spoke prophetically, 
it has been recorded that the bishop that condemned Huss to death for his dangerous doctrines, doctrines which threatened the seat of power in Rome to control people. It has been said that the bishop which condemned Huss to death was buried in the church in which Luther was later ordained. And in those days, and I assume still today, when a Roman Catholic priest is ordained, he prostrates himself on the ground. And history tells us that when Luther prostrated himself on the ground of the church in which he was ordained, it was over the tomb of the bishop that condemned Huss to death. And it has been joked about that perhaps when the bishop heard Huss say that a swan would come that could not be silenced, that he said, over my dead body. And in great providential irony, that is what happened. It took Luther quite a while, perhaps more than a decade, to come to the convictions that he had. You early see in people like Wycliffe and Huss. At one point during Luther's training, he was notable for his intelligence and capability. He was sent on a pilgrimage to Rome. Now you have to understand, in this day, people aren't traveling by car or rail. They often didn't even travel on horse. Luther made most of the trip to Rome by conviction and by necessity on foot, crossing mountain passes to get there. And when he got there, he expected that his heart would be enlightened and his mind would be transformed. But what he saw in Rome was deplorable. You had rich clergymen and you had poor people who weren't aided at all in their poverty. You had priests and bishops who practiced immorality. And Luther saw all of this. But Luther was still seeking to appease God by his piety. The steps that Jesus historically walked up in his trial with Pontius Pilate had been transported from the holy city Jerusalem to Rome so that people could complete their pilgrimage when they got there. And so Luther, whenever he got to Rome, did just that, crawling on his knees up each step praying on each step, kissing each step, and hoping that by the time he got to the pinnacle of the staircase, his conscience would finally be appeased in this precious city of Rome where the seat of ecclesiastical power had been settled, but he felt no better. Upon returning from Rome, his conscience had not been appeased, and in fact, he had begun to wonder if Rome had the truth at all. Initially, of course, as you look back into the history of Luther's life, he was not seeking to create Lutheranism. He was not seeking to create following, but he was troubled by what had happened in the teaching in Rome. This Roman universal or Catholic church in Luther's mind had gone astray in many ways. In 1516, 1517, a man was sent from Rome to where Luther taught. By this time, he's a lecturer, a well-respected lecturer who oversaw monasteries and trained other priests. 
He was also a pastor to the people in a town called Wittenberg. A man sent from Rome named Tetzel came to Wittenberg to sell these indulgences that I talked to you about a bit earlier. Because the Pope was seen by all accounts and purposes to be infallible and to, in some ways, be able to draw from the treasury of Christ's merits, sounded very doctrinal, and the basic idea behind that is that because the Pope was seen to be the leader of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, that he had special access to the merits of Jesus and could dispense them. He, in some ways, was a conduit of saving grace. In fact, if you look at Roman Catholic catechisms that teach people, even to this day, sometimes you will see a picture of Jesus in heaven with his uh, nail-scarred hands pouring blood from heaven. Underneath him, you will see Mary, who then takes her hands and dispenses Jesus' righteousness, his blood merits to the earth, and then you will see the Pope underneath her, who then dispenses it to his cardinals and archbishops and so forth, so that hopefully it then eventually trickles down to all the common people like you and me, and we can receive the merits of Jesus. The Pope was seen to be a dispenser, a conduit of grace, and so he sends this guy Tetzel to Wittenberg and to other cities to sell indulgences. And just to remind you, the indulgences were something that you could purchase And in so doing, you could have the hope that your loved ones that had passed on would have a shortened time in purgatory where their sins were being burned off. So, Johann Tetzel had a wagon, and on that wagon he had relics. Relics would be like a splinter from the cross. And by looking at it, or perhaps even touching it and praying in front of it, you could receive special merits. Bones from the apostles and so forth and so on. And so Tetzel would say that whenever the coin in the basket clings, the soul from purgatory springs. In other words, whenever you give us your money, the soul of your loved one gets to go to paradise. Luther, by this time, was so troubled by his own conscience and by the state of the people that he led and what he had seen in Rome that he had begun to question this idea that one could buy God off through effort, that one could receive merit by looking at a piece of wood or an old bone, allegedly that of Peter or James or John. So at this time, in October of 1517, Luther nailed to the castle church door in Wittenberg 95 theses. And if you read through the theses, they're basically one or two two-sentence statements that build upon one another, which question this doctrine of indulgences. At the heart of it, Luther was questioning what real repentance looked like. Is it inward between God and man, or is it something outward? Can you appease God through your righteousness? It is likely, historians say, that at this time when Luther nailed the theses to the door, If you know anything about Luther, in so many ways, this was the most famous thing he ever did. It's not unlikely that Luther wasn't even a convert at this point, still wrestling with a guilty conscience, still trying to discern how one could be right with God, how one could be justified. One might look at this as an act of defiance, that Luther was ticked off 
went out and found a mallet and an old rusty nail and on a piece of parchment went to the castle door in anger in front of dozens of people and nailed it to the door and wanted to create a dispute with Rome. That's really not what he was doing. It was common in that day that if you wanted to have a debate, that you went to the place where everybody gathered, which was the church. And in some ways, the castle door was like a billboard or a corkboard. When he nailed the 95 Theses to the door, he wanted to have a debate with leading church officials as to whether or not this practice of indulgences was taking advantage of people. Oh, and by the way, the reason that the Pope had sent Tetzel and others into the countryside to these towns to sell these indulgences is so they could build St. Peter's Basilica. If you watch on Christmas Eve, the Christmas Mass from Rome, it happens in St. Peter's Basilica, the funding of which began back in 1517 or so in Luther's day. It had fallen into disrepair by this point, and the Pope wanted to make it a grand cathedral. Well, very quickly, this became known. Word spread. The printing press had come about by this time, which we'll talk about in just a couple moments once more. And this 95 theses, these 95 theses reached the Pope and the Roman Emperor, who was just really a young novice himself. Eventually, and we're skipping a lot, but eventually four years later or so, three and a half years later, in 1521, Luther is summoned to a council, it's called a diet, in a town called Worms. Looks like worms whenever you read it on paper, W O R M S. And in April of 1521, Luther's writings, his 95 Theses, and other books that he wrote in the meantime were gathered together on a table, and he was brought before the Roman emperor and other leading church officials and asked if he had written these books and if he stood by them. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, the apostle says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and other relevant parallel passages which led Martin Luther to the conviction that not only were things like indulgences wrong, that one could not find favor with God through relics or through merit, but one could find righteousness with God. One could be declared righteous. One could be reconciled to God, find peace with God, find favor with God, be restored to God exclusively on the basis of faith. It was some time after when Luther nailed the theses to the door in 1517, and before 1521 when Luther was summoned to this council in Worms, where Luther came to the conviction that the gospel is something different from the law. Though the law prepared us, prepared God's people for the gospel, the gospel was a message of grace, the good news, that the bad news that we are under condemnation can be overcome, not by us working hard, but because God is sovereignly gracious. And if we will trust Jesus, He will 
declare us to be righteous. It's, it's a legal term. We pass from condemnation to life. We pass from disfavor to favor. And so when Luther stood in front of the council and the Roman emperor in Worms in April of 1521, he was asked, do you hold to these things that you teach? Do you hold to these doctrines which undercut at least a thousand years of Roman Catholic teaching? Luther, trembling, asked for 24 hours to think. At 6 p.m. the next day, he comes before them and says this, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Some say that Luther added to this, Here I stand, I can do no other. In other words, I stand by these writings, not because I am infallible, because they square with the Word of God. And the things that he had written in that intervening period between 1517 and 1521 began to undo the disastrous eclipse of the gospel. So that once again, Germans and the French and the English and eventually the rest of the known world could hear the pure gospel of Jesus Christ taught through the word of God. As often happened that day, this diet, this council lasted for another month or so the end of which he was condemned to death. Before the end of the council, however, his local ruler, Germany was broken up really into little kingdom states at that time, his local ruler, a man named Frederick, really liked Luther. He liked him personally, and he was very much intrigued by what Luther was teaching and writing. He squirreled him away under a pseudonym to a castle in Wartburg, another city in Germany, and kept him there under another name to protect his life because if the people of the emperor and the pope eventually could find Luther, they would have done to him what happened to Huss and Wycliffe. He'd be burned or beheaded or something like that. Luther did not waste this time. In a little under a year, because he was squirreled away, hidden away, he needed to find something to do. And Luther was nothing if he was not industrious. During this time, he translated the New Testament into German, the first time that the Word of God had been spoken in the vernacular. And as I mentioned earlier, because of the advent of the printing press, God in His providence brought about the Reformation at just the right time. The New Testament was spread all around Germany. Eventually, it was translated into French and English and was sent all around the known world. And thus, Luther, who had never set out upon this journey for this purpose, began a movement that could not be stopped. Lutheranism, as it came to be known, spread all around that region and beyond. Eventually, his influence would be felt in places like Geneva, under people like John Calvin, 
and Scotland under people like John Knox and eventually all around the rest of the world as well. Luther, though not setting out to change the world, God used him to do just that. After he translated the New Testament into German, he eventually makes it back to Wittenberg where he continues to teach and preach and write. And here his legacy continued. He married a woman named Catherine von Bora, whom he called Katie. She had been a nun herself and had come to understand the gospel and came to Luther and this former monk and nun who once sought to appease God through their efforts and who had been saved by God's sovereign grace, married one another, had six children. They kept a lot of other people in their home. It is said that it was not uncommon for them to have 25 people around their dining table at night. They raised not only their own six children, but many orphaned nieces of theirs. They took care of the orphans in their circle of influence. They practiced gospel implications in their home. Luther loved his wife until the end. As I mentioned earlier, he called her Katie. He also called her his rib from Genesis chapter 2. He also sometimes called her his Lord, for she was a strong German lady who ran this household well. He said about Katie that he would not trade her for France or Venice. She was so precious to him. And together, they led a somewhat quiet life. They led their church. They discipled people. They trained pastors, which went around the known part of Europe and planted churches. And he continued to write one of the most important things, if not the most important things that Luther did other than translating the New Testament into German, is his book on the bondage of the will in which he argued that one cannot save himself by his own efforts, that we are bound by sin. This is Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Only God can sovereignly overcome the human condition. It cannot be merited by our works. If you want to read Luther's genius and his theological legacy, that's a great one. If you want to read a good, probably the best biography on Luther, is by a man named Bainton called Here I Stand. And if you want to read a more popular treatment of Luther's life, along with other theologians like Augustine and Calvin, John Piper's written a really good series on uh, historical Christian figures. And this one in particular, The Legacy of Sovereign Joy, is about Augustine and Luther and Calvin. I would highly recommend those if you don't re read more technical works. In Luther's life, both professional and in private, his family life, we see the marks of God taking a man who formerly was racked by a guilty conscience, seeking to buy God off by his own efforts. And we see a man transformed who understands that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is God's means of justifying the ungodly. And Luther made it his life's goal to make this good news known as far and broadly as he could in his writings and in the churches under his influence. Luther died in 1546. He had been sick for quite a while. He returned to his 
hometown where he was going to settle a dispute between two powerful brothers. Luther was a pastor after all. He cared about practical matters. It was a cold journey and compounded with some of other Luther's physical ailments. He died while there. And so it then begs the question, what is Luther's legacy? Well, perhaps as much as anything, Luther's legacy is bound up primarily in his translation of the Bible into the vernacular, and even more importantly, his teaching that the unjust are justified by faith alone. Next week, we are going to look at the five primary doctrinal points that arose out of the Reformation that we still tenaciously must cling to today with joy and conviction. Perhaps the one that Luther upheld the most was this doctrine that we call sola fide, that we are justified by faith alone. As I already said today, Luther taught that justification by faith alone was the doctrine upon which the church rises or falls. God used Luther to bring the church out of 1,000 years of gospel eclipse to show people that they cannot be right with God by what they do, but by what He has done. And if we will trust Him as He reveals Himself in His Word, we may pass from death to life. We may be justified on the basis of the righteousness of Christ as we place our faith in Him. One then must ask the question, so what? Is this just something that nerdy theologians are celebrating this year? Shouldn't we just move on to uh, beggar's night because that's more fun, at least you get candy. I would suggest to you that the legacy of the Reformation is still living today. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 that the gates of Hades would not prevail against his church. If you were Martin Luther in 1505, entering the monastery with a horribly burdened conscience, you might have questioned that. If you were Martin Luther in 1517 when he nailed his theses to the door because of this evil practice of milking the people for money for the building of a grand cathedral, you might have questioned that. If you were Luther in 1521, where your books are put on a table, and as far as you can tell, they line up with the 66 books of the Bible, and you were asked by the Roman emperor and the church council to recant or die, you might question that. But Jesus kept His promises. Through a simple man like Luther, through providence, when he was born, to whom he was born, a lightning storm, an entrance into a monastery, an ordination over an evil bishop who had been prophesied against, a trip to a corrupt city, teaching through the Bible and books like Romans and Galatians and Hebrews, coming before a council living under the protection of a local king who didn't need to help him. The printing press, all these details were not luck. 
these were the sovereign movements of God to coalesce around this remarkable figure. But a man like you and me, a man who believed with all of his heart that God had designed a world whereby the unrighteous could once again be declared righteous, but not by what they did, for no one is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. All of us have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Whatever the Word of God says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. How then are the unjust justified? As I read earlier, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Luther saw this. Luther taught this. Luther put his life on the line to make this known. And in so doing, Jesus kept his promise. And now five centuries later, which is no blip on the radar, we are thankful that Jesus has kept his promise to maintain for us a pure gospel in Bibles that we can read in our language and handle with our own hands. It was commonplace in that day for Bibles to be translated into Latin and chained to the pulpits of the churches. You couldn't read it if you wanted to. Luther made it possible to have a Bible in your own hands wherein you could, like him, read its pages, be convicted of your unrighteousness, and see the righteousness of Jesus, which leaps off almost every page of the Bible, God's promise to justify the unjust. And as we look at the life of Luther, I hope that we can be reminded that Jesus never fails to keep one promise. He has always done so, and he will do so today. And the greatest promise that he has kept as he has preserved a people for himself who are justified not by their efforts but by his grace. The very fact that most of us grew up in homes where we heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that God justifies the unrighteous on the basis of faith in his son is an act of his grace. And for this we should be thankful. And to this we must give our lives. Not just those like me who are paid to do it, but all of us teaching the next generation to understand the gospel, to embrace it, and to make it known. So applicationally, you may trust the providence of God. Jesus keeps his promises. He preserves his church. He preserves the good news. But we must continue this. One of the battle cries of the Reformation, for in many ways it was a battle, was a Latin saying, Simper Reformanda, which translated into English is always reforming. If you look at most of the mainline denomination churches in our country today, almost all of them have abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the inclination of the human heart. We want to merit our salvation. But it is only the study, the preaching, and the embracing of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
that pushes back against the heart's tendency toward self-righteousness and allows us to find peace with God. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters, embrace the gospel of Jesus. Be thankful that it has been preached to you and make it known as widely and broadly as you can. We are always to be reforming, carrying forward the work of Jesus, carrying forward the work of men like Martin Luther and others who came after, that the gospel might not be eclipsed in our day. And it should be that as long as we stand, as long as we have breath, that we will both embrace and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. One final practical thing before we quit. There's another Latin saying which is attributed to Luther, and it is this, that we are simul justus et peccator. You impressed by my, I don't know Latin, by the way. I know a few phrases. This Latin phrase translated into English is we are simultaneously just yet sinful. The essence of Luther's point behind this phrase is this. Though we are justified by grace as a gift from God, as we place our faith in Jesus, we are still sinful. We have not yet reached perfection. It may well be that what led Luther to his understanding of justification by grace through faith alone was what he saw in the ugliness of the repentance and indulgences in his day, which led him to find peace with God through faith in Jesus. But Luther understood that if one was to find favor with God over time, one had to lead a life of repentance. And so it has been said that we are once regenerate, once born again, but always repenting. In other words, the fact that we are justified by grace and it is not something that we can earn, does not give us license or freedom to do whatever we want. Rather, Luther would say that the design of redemption is holiness. The design of redemption is that we find favor and peace with God. And so I say to you, if you have trusted Jesus, you are simultaneously justified before God, and yet you are sinful, like me. What do we need to do? Buy God off? not at all, but to return again and again and again to the righteousness of Jesus revealed to us in the gospel. And therefore, my brothers and sisters, the gospel is for every day. You do not come to God initially through your merits, and you do not keep yourself by your merits. You cast yourself on Jesus, repenting of sin and trusting in his righteousness every day. So the legacy of Luther speaks to us today, and I call you to take comfort in the fact that Jesus keeps his promises. I call you to have convictions to both believe and to proclaim the gospel, and I call you to trust the gospel of Jesus today. This is the, Luther, this is the legacy of Luther, and it is the message which comes down to us today. Thank God that he has preserved his pure gospel for us. May we embrace it, may we enjoy it, and may we make it known. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now we say 